architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. What's the new focus as Building Smart goes forward? I believe it's really capturing the momentum that we now have around the owner mandate. We've built the standard. We have the validation by the uh, software community that it can be implemented. And uh, we're at the point now where we've incorporated the infrastructure extensions. So in the next product release that we'll see from vendors, IFC 4.3, as we call it, which is the current production standard and about to be ISO standard for uh, building smart. How do you put that in practice? How can we help industry adopt all of that good work, apply the open standards, capture the benefits? Uh, We're doing that, I think, on several fronts. Individual professional certification that an engineer or an architect can do uh, foundation and practitioner exams to uh, qualify in terms of understanding the open standard and how to apply IFC to uh, to the business needs uh, is one place that we're working. How do we reassure users that the software they're using has been certified to do the right use of the standard within the software? So a software certification program which we've had for some time, but needs to be uh, enhanced and updated and really allow not just software companies to certify what's in an IFC model, but even end users to validate that their project data is correct. So uh, a, a wider spectrum of certification to drive quality and consistency and just maybe providing resources. Uh, an important initiative, I think, is coming up with a common set of resources that define best practices for use of the open standards so that the consulting community that are helping project teams and companies adopt are really using a set of user guides, uh, a set of uh, process maps, uh, uh, and a knowledge base that really provides consistency and the highest quality of support. Because what we want to guarantee is the successful use of the standard in practice And we can do a lot, I think, to support the community. So the focus is not about building the standard, to your point. It's now about making sure that people are successful in applying it, using it, and and reaping the benefits. Yes, and I think um, Building Smart certainly has to think about, uh, from the technical viewpoint, what will be the next uh, important things. Tricky part in this is um, the transition. I have seen this in many technology companies who had to follow this point to build up a new technology. And there is a very critical point when you have to change from an old technology to a new technology. Because very often you just cannot make a switch. You cannot just put a jumper from one side to the other. And I think this is something which has to be thought of in the next years, how this transition can be done. Again, we need trust in the industry is following this transition. Because in this transition times, you still need the old technology because you don't have anything. At the same time, you start with the new technology, which then is in a prototype status first and you have and, and so on. And that's a critical point um, to, to come through. And I, I really hope that Brilliant Smart will succeed in this. I'm as convinced today as I was when I joined Building Smart all those years ago that the work we're doing is really important. The world needs the far-sighted people that are working within the Building Smart community to do what they're doing because it's digital transformation, it's engineering that will have the most impact on the living spaces for our future population. And um, 
it's thoroughly enjoyable and I wish, I hope, I'm looking forward to more people getting involved and working with us. It's a great place to be. So what I would really hope is that the industry moves towards you know, some kind of um, an ecosystem where an architect or any other designer is is changing something in the in in the model in the 3D model and then gets immediate uh, input and feedback on the consequences of that. So imagine that I change a ceiling height or change a wall or change a certain material, get immediate impact on what does that mean for CO2 emissions? What does it mean for safety during construction? What does it mean for energy usage over the whole life cycle? What does it mean for costs, obviously? Those things influence each other as well, obviously. I can even imagine that when I uh, uh, design something that has functional requirements, like a simple thing like a staircase, it has a beginning, it has an end, it has some kind of functional requirements for usability. Well, why are we designing that and why are we um, repetitively coming up with the same kind of staircases for every building? Why not just set the functional requirements, set a couple of points in a model, and then just like with the CO2 calculations, have some kind of uh, supplier tap into our uh, model, which is alive in the cloud, and come up with a couple of suggestions for a product for a staircase. Or after the CO2 calculation, uh, manufacturers for windows could come up with alternative windows that could improve the, the, the impact or the, decrease the impact on uh, CO2 emissions in our industry uh, while still being cost effective. Um, so really, when you look at the core of what Building Smart is, the neutral platform where a lot of people come together, I would really hope to automate that as well. And I think when you look at our current technical roadmap, it's obviously very much focused on getting IFC up until uh, the next level of predictability and uh, rethinking software certification. But there's also this, this small paragraph in there on API standardization. Um, and I think that's where we, we need to focus on in the future as well. Uh, those newer technologies, not only data standardization or process standardization, but um, uh, standardizing the interfaces between all of the different stakeholders to also be be able to uh, to automate those kind of processes, to really automate insights, automate knowledge, so that a, a designer and an architect can really focus on designing stuff and doesn't have to focus on the engineering or the consequences, because that would be immediate input. That would be my dream, but... That's... That is that is my dream. That is my dream. I want to be an architect again. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLamey, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm HOK. This is Build Smart. After his time at HOK, Patrick, as he puts it, has been repurposed. Now, as the chairman of Building Smart International, Patrick will outline a new strategy for the building industry and so much more. You'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Oh, I'm, I am. You guys have got me hopping. <laughs> it's great. What I'm learning in doing these podcasts and doing these interviews is how much impact there is that I had forgotten or didn't know about little insights that other people have. Wow, this is really a big journey. And uh, it's impacting different corners of the world in really wondrous ways. I knew that, but I'm, I now have a, a much more visceral understanding of it. It's, it's, a, it's actually a great journey. Do you have any specific examples of that, of those little things that sort of popped up those little bonus nuggets that, that you learned along the way? Well, um, I, I'm learning as people, one, one thing that's very clear is um, I'm learning the Richard Petrie story in ways that I did not know. I know about the story of hiring him and getting him to, talking him into it. But uh, other people have said, you know, including his wife, actually, you know, when he started, he was all by himself at a desk in his own house. 
there was no office, there was no staff, and he had to basically sit down by himself and, and figure out what to do, create a job for himself, and create a, a strategy for the Building Smart Enterprise, which he did. Yeah. And uh, he came back many times to me and said, you know, I turned in my master plan to you. I think it was four weeks or six weeks after he started. And it was highly accurate. He said, we're going to need this and this and this. And we've eventually filled all, all the positions that he said. We filled the last one actually just after he passed. Yeah. What an amazing man. So I'm learning about him and I, I, I didn't fully appreciate here he was by himself with no staff uh, having to figure out how to make this global volunteer network of very in, in earnest people, how to make it work. Yeah. And um, the other thing we got into yesterday with Ken Harold was the early structure of building smart had to be, had to be chapters by country. People in France did not want to have uh, just join a big consortium. They wanted to have a French chapter. Why? Because they wanted to speak French to each other. And they wanted to think about how to engage with French practitioners and how to work with the French government or the regulators in France. So we ended up with a chapter network, which was unwieldy in a way, but it was the only way we could. And it's turning out, well, came across this really apt description. Building smart before Richard Petrie, you could imagine as a donut. The chapters or the ring, they were all around the outside. In the center, where Building Smart International is now, was empty. We had no central anything. The chapters got together a couple of times a year, coughed up a few dollars, a few euros, actually, 20,000 euros each to be a chapter. And we used that money to pay for some technical work developing the IFC standard. But we had no overarching strategy. It was just how much could we money could we put together to get another section of the IFC standard written. And what Richard Petrie did, he basically filled the center of that donut with a different strategy, which is to sell memberships in Building Smart International to large companies, uh, institutions, and so on. So the budget now for Building Smart International is much more substantial. It's never enough, Mark, but Richard Petrie had to figure that out and then had to go after these companies and get them to put up money, uh, including just to pay himself. It, it was, we always were running on the ragged edge of, of uh, not having enough money to pay him and to then pay, gee, which he hired a, an operations director, Richard Kelly, whom, whom we will interview. And we had a big discussion each time. Can we afford this? Is there enough money? And uh, Richard and I had those conversations each time, uh, including this last person, Celine, our compliance director, the first woman director in Building Smart, very proud to say. Uh, Richard interviewed her and made a job offer, and then he passed. And we had to talk her into still coming. She said, well, I, I wanted to work under Richard Petrie. Now I don't know who I'll be working under. Yeah. And we had to persuade her to take the job anyway on faith that the interim leader, Ian Howell, whom you know, and the new uh, CEO, which we're interviewing for now, will be just right. But that the Building Smart community is something she just can't miss. That friendship club. And she has said to me several times now, she made the right decision in coming with us. So I'm just struck by each one of these decisions was like a pivot point. And each time it worked, each person Richard hired was exactly the right person for that time and uh, have added to this passion for uh, making Building Smart more relevant and more useful uh, and helping us achieve our mission. And so before, as a hearty band of volunteers, we had a lot of fun and we accomplished a lot, but we didn't have the outsized influence that we, that we do now. And my only regret about it is that Richard Petrie didn't get to live to see the full flowering of that. That was his initial goal. I'll never forget, he, he said it in a very British way, we have, we have to be the mark in demand. 
Now, what the heck does that mean? The market demand means that the Building Smart logo has to be demanded by people. I want to buy software with the Building Smart logo on it that says that this software will be compliant with Building Smart standards, meaning that I can now communicate with other colleagues on my project. We have to be the go-to, basically the go-to standards organization. Um, I'm actually looking forward to the, the Petrie Memorial event in London next month. And his wife and his three children will be there. And we've just decided, our board has just decided to award him a posthumous a Building Smart Fellowship. And Building Smart Fellows are a little bit like AIA Fellows. It's for extraordinary service to the profession or extraordinary design or things like that. So in the case of Building Smart, fellows are for volunteers, not paid staff, who have done an extraordinary job. And I'm, I'm a fellow, for example. And, you, and the, the nice pin that we have, well, our, we have one that are, that, are, that are actually made out of gold. It's very pretty. So we're going to, we decided, even though he was a paid staff person, he contributed so much that the board decided to award him a special Building Smart Fellowship. And um, we talked to his wife, and she didn't want to come up on stage and receive the pin. So I'm going to present it to his grown son, Nick. Uh, and I get to do the presenting, which yeah. actually gives me goosebumps just thinking about that. What an emotional thing that will be to say, well, this is, this is for you to remember. It's really for your dad, uh, who was such a great influence to, to help Building Smart grow up and become this global uh, concern that we are today. And Nick's got a lot of his father in him. So it'll, it'll make it doubly so uh, emotional. I mean, this is a man who, I mean, this organization has literally changed the world, the way the world is designed and built. And yes. this is the man who, like you said, took a donut and filled the hole. I mean, he, he, he built the structure on which everything that is happening today it, what is hanging on. And so it's, uh, it's a fascinating story to hear that. It is a, it is a fascinating story. And, I'm, I'm, I have renewed fascination for it, just been hearing other people give their versions. And uh, Mr. Yajima, who's a good friend of mine from Japan, he's on our board. His company, Kojima Construction, is a great big player in the, in the field. He's an example of the far-flung nature of this. He's using open BIM standards to transform how his company builds. He's done a lot of innovating and things like automated systems for determining what kind of piling you need to have around a construction excavation site, all using uh, little algorithms, but all using open BIM standards. And, and Kojima is, I think, the most prestigious construction company in Japan, and they work all over the world, including in the U.S. And he's actually changing the, the, their, their way of working to a much more digitally driven way. And uh, they have said, for example, they have a shortage of workers now to actually build things like so many contractors. So they're now experimenting with robots on site to help do some of the tasks that would normally be done by workmen just to get the job done. Uh, and the tasks are, are only possible because we have digital standards so the robot knows where everything is in that building because it's got a map of it in its brain and can help lift and put things together uh, on the floor of a building and then lift itself up to the next floor and so on. Amazing creative stuff that is only possible if you, if you think about things digitally and if you think about them as, as interoperable uh, systems. The robot has to know where things are from all these different parts and pieces from structure to mechanical and everything else so that it can actually do some useful work. Well, that's only possible if you have open BIM standards. Yes. So I get tickled when I see innovation going on. People are taking the standards that we already are, have out there and in use. They're inventing new ways to build just on the standards that we have out there. They're not waiting for us to finish the next version. They're, they're racing ahead with their own uh, use of these things. Wow. 
And it, it doesn't have to be like it was. It can be, we can have a brighter future with digital work and uh, we can build more perfect buildings with digital standards than we ever could by hand. I'm old enough to remember that when you bought something, if it said handmade, it was a mark of quality. Well, these days, the, most, the highest mark of quality is machine-made. Something that's done with, in an assembly line or a factory by robots or special purpose machines. The cell phone is a pretty good example. Maybe assembled by hand, but machines do all the tight close-up work so the things fit perfectly. Our buildings can be like that. We can actually have buildings that fit together perfectly, maybe for the first time ever, because we're using digital standards and machines that can actually work to those closer tolerances. So our buildings can be better. I didn't think about that when we first started. I just wanted to fix my problems as an architect, but we're, we're rippling through now a whole industry. And uh, our standards are going to change the way architects work. And we have a chance, if we take the right opportunity with it, for architects to regain a place in society. If we seize this, we don't have to seize it. We have to consciously work at it, Mark. I started this because I want, I love architecture. I love what architects do at our best. And I want more of it, not less. I don't want uh, cities designed by civil engineers. God love them all. They do a good job with drainage and this and that, but I don't want them designing my cities. I want architects to design them. If the architect sees the moment and leverage themselves so that design takes center stage again, so that architects can use the, use the digital standards that we're developing and good software to help leverage that software to manage a lot of the complexity of, of uh, coordination. So the architect gets freed up to be more thoughtful about design, take more time, explore more options, make better buildings, better thoughtful design, spend more time listening to what your client needs and wants, and not just rush to finish design because you know you've got a big coordination job in your future. That's a big deal because we're putting the priority for design, good, thoughtful design, back, front, and center for the architect if we have the courage to seize that. Yes. It, it, it will also position us more as experts that the mundane, repetitive things that we do as architects today will be done by technology which means the, the specialty of what architects are and who they are and what they bring to uh, the built environment will become even more in demand because the building technology can't do that part. And so the value of architects is risen by that. Yes. If, again, I, I just keep adding, if we seize this. Correct. Right. I'll give you an example of a place where we have failed as a profession. It's in school, uh, grade school particularly. Local grade schools in California, where I live, are mostly now mobile uh, or pre-built classroom that can be delivered on a truck yeah. by truck and plopped down on the ground someplace. They comply with all the codes. They check all the boxes. They come pre-wired and, and, and pre-finished, so they're ready to be used. The developers or the builders of these will finance them for a school district. They're inexpensive. Uh, they can be financed. They can be delivered next Tuesday. And so every city in California has some of these classroom buildings, sometimes clustered around a, an architect-designed core of a school. But if architects want to get back in the game, we're going to have to get so good at this that we can compete with, let's say, repetitively punched out mobile classrooms that, you know, they check all the boxes except one they're not inspirational in any shape or form. If we want our children to be in wonderful spaces, in a basically nurturing good environment that an architect helped create, I think that has a lot to do with how people grow up and how, what they learn. If you're in a building that's an inspirational space with good light and uh, well-organized so that it's a noble place, and classroom buildings aren't noble, they're just boxes. Yeah. So can we do this? Can we outdo this by doing custom design of classrooms and schools digitally 
with digital assist from our software with contractor partners and compete with the mobile classrooms? I think we can, but we have to have the guts to go for it. I mean, I don't want, my kids are grown and my grandchildren are in grade school now. I don't want them to go to mobile classrooms to go to school. When I was a kid, the best building in town was the school. Probably the second best building in town was the church. And the houses that people were in were so-so, but schools always got top billing. And now they're not, they're neglected. Well, do we just want to walk away from this? I want to reclaim that territory that we lost. That was the basis of the McLamey curve. That's why I got involved with Building Smart, help our profession preserve and enhance the value of good design. Nothing more, nothing less. And if we go through all of this and we get more efficient, but design is somehow squeezed out of it, then that's not the, the outcome I want. I do worry about this, Mark. I think architects need to wake up on this and decide that we're going to actually embrace this as a way forward for our practices. And it's not the only thing architects need to do, but it's a great big piece of it. That if we don't put design center stage in our practice, what are we doing? But uh, the door is open for us and the door is opening wider. And I think um, we just have to change our thinking. It's gonna take a lot more work for people to understand this. We're gonna have to say it to them and say it again and again. If you wanna be, be part of the future, embrace this technology, embrace your contractor as your collaborator, not as your uh, opponent or your enemy, and uh, figure out how you're gonna get back in the game. When you look into the future about what you're talking about, we're talking a lot about the future with Building Smart and everything that they've, that they've built and have established these standards in a perfect world when it is working the way you want it to work, right? And, and this dream that you have for the future for architects and architecture, how do you think we get there? What needs to happen, right? The standards are there and the future is there but what actually has to happen to make that happen? Is that individual architects taking that responsibility and doing that? Is it these big corporate architecture firms saying, yes, we're going to do that? How does it actually happen? Well, I, I think the answer is that there's a bunch of things that have to happen. First, our standards have to mature a little bit more. We're, we're almost there. We've just uh, issued uh, IFC 4.3, IFC 5.0 is around the corner. That's a major change. It's a big upgrade to the technology behind the IFC standard. And it's going to be much broader and much deeper than uh, anything that's come before. It will really overcome a lot of the barriers, I'm going to say, that have prevented things to happen. I can describe this to you, Mark, this way, that if I'm an architect designing in the future, I'm going to say, five to 10 years from now. Yeah. You can do some of this now, you'll be able to do all of this in five to 10 years. But as you're designing, you're designing with a computer, maybe you have a sketch pad that you're designing by hand because you'd like to use your hands, but it's immediately taken up into a digital form on your computer, thanks to some really good software. And as you design, you're gonna have on, in Windows, uh, on the on side or bottom of your screen, little running tabs. They're gonna say, you're 93% in compliance with your client's program, or uh, the building is now with some gross assumptions about materials and so on, your building is gonna cost this or it's gonna cost that. Those are running in the background real time yeah. as you design. From the, very, from the very initial. From the very, very earliest day that you're designing. So you're getting all this feedback that we used to just have by experience. I think I'm about right. Now you'll have this information. And uh, as you're designing, if you have a green goal, which you probably will and should, there will be a tally that inform me as I go. And uh, if you're collaborating with a contractor, contractor will be on, the, on their screen someplace else, doesn't have to be with you in the room, although that would be good. Could be across town or across the world, doesn't matter contractor will be able to give you real-time feedback about things like price and availability of materials and uh, delivery dates and so on. 
you'll have a lot of information. In fact, you'll have to filter it. I was just thinking that. <laughs> you have to filter it because everything in its time. Somebody asked me, uh, if you want to follow the McLamy curve, does that mean I need to do my door schedule when I'm in schematic design or door hardware schedule? No, you don't. Unless the, maybe if you're design, designing a jail, maybe it's important there, but for energy and for costs and so on, it's an incidental. What you want to do, you want to comply with your client program early. You want to know in rough terms, is your building going to be at the cost that's in your budget? Uh, and how do you do that? You do that by getting an early fix on your structural system, which is a lot of money, foundation, structure, skin, and probably the mechanical system. You start with things that, and again, you, because you're an architect, you know these things. The, I, have to, I have to deal with these things in schematics or DD, design development. But I, now I have real-time feedback, and I've got people collaborating with me as I'm designing. And yes, you can turn things on and off just like you can now. But by the time you finish schematics, you've really solved the building. You know that you've met your client's goals. You know that you've met your, your cost goals. You know that materials and manufacturer's products are available. You've got a rich array to choose from. Uh, you know that you've met your green goals. So all of that stuff will be offered up to you, uh, really valuable, and you won't have to think about it too much. You won't have to be a technology master. You don't have to be a computer geek. It'll just be there. It'll be available to you. And it'd be as, as much as just sliding stuff around on your screen and trying things out and getting the right mix of materials and so on to achieve your green goals. Uh, that's the way it should be. Yeah. That's the way it should be. And uh, I see that as a bright new world for the architect because it's the sharpest pencil going. And if we use these tools correctly, we're going to do better buildings, far better buildings. Yeah. And they're going to be compelling. I was taught classically that you position your building appropriately on the site to take advantage of views and the sun and you fit in with the character of the neighborhood and so on. Most architects kind of push through all of that. Well, what if we could actually take the time to do that now? Because a lot of the other things that we have to spend time doing become much more automated. So we can actually be thoughtful. We're not just seeking some, let's see, I've designed another school, so I'm gonna just kind of use that as my template for this new school. Well, no, I can afford to think about this fresh. Maybe the school, the new one, maybe it's in a different climate or maybe I have a different client that wants something special about the way they teach. Well, now I can start to do that, Mark instead of rushing through to save time for coordination, coordination is going to be taken care of in large measure by the software. Right. And you know what? Architects were never that good at it. I don't know, except for maybe one person. I don't know anybody that got up in the morning, had their coffee and say, boy, I can hardly wait to coordinate drawings today. <laughs> I just, if you're a designer, that's in your DNA, that's what you love to do. Well, let's give you extra time to do it and have the computer do the gnarly, tedious coordination work. That's the goal. In order to build smart, you need to operate intelligently. If you feel frustrated wrangling all your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today, or you're tired of staring at poorly designed software that's just slowing you down, Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, the Monograph platform allows you to track your firm's time, projects, budgets, invoices, and payments all in real time. With their innovative visualization tool, MoneyGant, you can immediately see whether you're under or over budget. Need to easily adjust your team's time week to week? Their tool resource allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Visit monograph.com today to see why hundreds of architecture firms call Monograph a game changer. How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcast, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments.
Hi, I'm Dimitri Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and, and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say now we are in peace with this. But (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday, because spaces shape society. Yeah, I thought of another one. um, That as you're designing and you, you finish the construction documents and you're ready to go, you're talking about all these, these tabs, they're all telling you that you're compliant with your codes and all of your, your sustainability requirements. When it's time to submit for a permit, it's no longer a 90-day review process. It's a 90-second review process because your computer is talking to the, to the municipal review computer who's saying, yes, this building meets all of the codes, confirmed, sends back approval, and your permit is sitting there with your drawings ready to, to submit to the contractor to go build. Amen. Automated permitting. Yeah. Not only code, uh, building code, but planning code. Setbacks, everything, everything. green uh, requirements, anything that you can imagine can be done by computers talking to each other. So you don't literally have to do that anymore. That'll be done online and in in a matter of seconds, like just like you said. Imagine what that could do to speed up and improve the flow of our process. Building Smart right now has a uh, compliance room. And people are working on that very thing of how to get automated code checking to happen. It's not as far along as some of these other things, but it's around the corner. I'd say the five to 10 year window is there's going to be some magical things happening. And you know, when, when they finally do happen, Mark, we're going to say, geez, why didn't we do this a long time ago? Because it takes a headache out of it and leaves just the joy of it. I'm old enough to remember I got to quit saying that, right? I, I can remember when we dialed my grandparents at Christmas time. They lived in Pennsylvania. We lived in Illinois. We had to use a long distance operator. We called our local operator who connected us by plugging in a, a cord into a socket right. to a long distance operator who connected us to the town where my grandparents lived, who connected us to their phone. It was a tedious process and expensive. Because my parents always said, now, wish grandma and grandpa Merry Christmas and tell them what, which one you are. Well, I'm Pat. And because there were four boys. Yeah. And don't take too much time because it's expensive. And now that's all been automated. And, uh, you don't have people doing that now. That's all by computers. So when, when you touch your cell phone and touch somebody's name on it, it finds their phone wherever in the world they are. It's magical but it's come to be expected. It's routine now. So we want this to be routine, Mark, not something special. We want it to be like, oh, of course. Yeah, we get our, we get our approvals online. We can test for code compliance all along the way as we're designing. And finally, when we push the button that says this is for real, it gives us a real permit and probably sends us a bill. Yeah. The other thing that I'm imagining, which is, will be fantastic, is construction costs will come down because of the efficiency that's involved in all of this. There's no longer all of this manual coordination and time and people and all of that, that, that the cost of construction will be reduced significantly. Yes. Let's talk about how, how significant the United Kingdom, the UK called me there to say, we, we need those digital standards. We're the biggest owner in the United Kingdom as most governments are. And we want to save 20% on the cost of construction. That means that instead of building four schools, we're going to have money to build five. 
And instead of four miles of road, we were going to build five. So that 20% number is already government policy in the UK. My own personal view is that it's going to be far bigger than that, at least 30, at least 30%. So if you think about that for a minute, and again, this comes back to my bim, bam, boom, you're spending 1% of your total building cost, spending less than 1% on your architect. Hey, architects, wake up. That's a selling point. That should be the best spent money, the most thoughtful, because the other 99% flow from it. And if you do it properly, you're going to pay for yourself just in the efficiency of, of construction. And if you, if you do a great job of designing the building to be efficient, the owner is going to pay for the cost of the building just in its lifetime of building operations. I mean, that's, that's where we should be. You know, I don't want to live uh, my children to go to school in plywood boxes anymore. I want them to be in noble buildings that are, uh, that are affordable. Affordability is a big part of the success that architects can bring to society if we use these tools correctly. But we have to get up and smell the coffee and change the way we work and embrace this and not run from it. So it's a, it's a call to arms, or it's a, it's a challenge to the profession to wake up and do this. And you said, what's it going to take? I think it's going to take a lot. The schools have to start teaching this. This has to become well-known. Uh, I think the laws for sharing of information where liability is attached, if you share information that's flawed, the laws have to change. The schools have to change. And individual practitioners have to ultimately change. The software companies have to change. I think they'll be first out of the box. So uh, liability law has to change and we have to learn how to do this. It'll take some time. The big firms, Mark, are already doing this. They can see the handwriting that, oh, this is going to be significant advantage. The small firms, the individual practitioner, the firms, the average uh, architecture firm in the U.S. is still eight people. Those firms are going to have to wake up and do this too. If they don't, uh, they're going to get left behind. It won't be a great future. If you do embrace it, you can have a great, uh, not only a great practice, but you can become a pillar in your community. You can really become a sought after, oh, I have to go see my architect because they can help me with this problem. They can do something that's really terrific. And it's not going to be torturous for me. It's going to be smooth and easy. Is there a way for those smaller firms to be involved in what Building Smart is doing? Yes, of course. It's ironic um, in Europe. Well, first of all, any architect can join any of the chapters. So we have a U.S. chapter and membership is open to individuals, firms, large companies, small companies, manufacturers, whatever. And uh, that's, that's something you can do today. And the, the chapters are going to be, uh, I, I talked about compliance. Chapters are going to be teaching. It's a lot like the lead standards. Uh, you know, people began teaching how to design green. You can, you can take an exam and become lead certified, which I am. And uh, this will be the same thing. You can be certified as an open BIM practitioner by Building Smart will eventually also be able to give you a compliance rating for your firm and a compliance rating for the, the information used in your project. That means that data is everything here. Information that you use to do your work that's captured and collected in, in the computer, which is amazing because it doesn't forget. And that information can be saved as IFC files. And if it's sorted and organized in a proper way, it gets a certain rating the better organized it is, the more useful in the future. So people can actually, and I think owners will begin to demand that uh, I, I not only want my building, I want the data, I own that data as the owner, and I want it in a building smart certified form so that I, as I expand my building or renovate it or do whatever in the future, I have that information. It's up to date. I don't have to go invent it again and have a survey. I save money and time by owning that data. That's gonna be a big thing. I think some firms can become experts in creating data files for clients and keeping them up to date as the clients renovate and modify their building over time as, as always happens. 
So there's a there's a lot of opportunity for firms to be involved in this in addition to design. It has to do with keeping the integrity of the information that the, that is generated during the design and construction of the building. And you know, buildings last a long time. So that's a think about this if you're an architect, keeping data standards for your favorite clients maybe is a small job, but it lasts 50 years. And if you have enough of them, that can be a pretty good living. Yeah. So think, think creatively about this, but it's a new world where we're not going to just throw the information away after we finish the building. We're going to keep it and nurture it and use it to help us uh, the next time the building needs to be changed. Boy, it's a, if, I, if I were a young practitioner, I'd be all over this. I'd want to do all of these things. And I'd be joining Building Smart. So, yes, these things are all out there for young people, especially if they just do it. And uh, I've told many young people about this, and they say, oh, gee, I don't have time, or I'm too busy, or my firm is stretched and stressed. I don't have enough fee, or I don't have enough time. Well, you've got to invest in yourself enough to make time to have some of this happen. One of the things that comes to mind is that architects often say that the value of design is, has been, you know, uh, reduced over time. And I think that what you're talking about gives us the opportunity, right? It's not actually a result, but it will be an opportunity for architects and the industry to bring design back as something that owners will demand, right? Yes. That, that yes. right now you talked about those school buildings uh, being placed in in the districts that's happening because there's a demand to keep the cost down right the demand is not design it's the cost right and so if the cost is reduced and the everything becomes efficient and we actively promote the importance of design then districts and people who live them in them and pay taxes will demand that that those schools are designed properly for their children if we do it right yes yes precisely exactly Mark, let me just talk about design because that's what architects do, right? That's what we all love to think about and dream about. And I think what, what's happened to our profession and uh, especially in the smaller firms that are, they get really stressed, just trying to make ends meet. You get a project, let's say a school. The, the tendency now is in the use of your time is to rush through schematic design and create a design that's good enough or okay without actually being as thoughtful as that description that you and I just went through of actually knowing that you're complying with the owner's brief and, and uh, that you're meeting green goals and so on. The result is that schools all tend to look alike. And the one that you did before and the one that you did now tend to be the same flavor. Even though it might be a different school and a different, even a different school district, they kind of look the same. They're not getting better, they're just being the same. So the only way through this is to do what I call thoughtful design. I see a lot of buildings these days in California where they have no overhangs on the roof. Uh, so the, the sun and the, and, and, the, and the rain are hitting the, uh, the walls of the building and they put these little uh, stainless steel pipe shade structures over the windows that look kind of cute, but they don't actually shade anything. Why? Well, because it looks cool. Well, it doesn't work well. It means that the building is taking a beating. I'm not talking about high rises here. I'm talking about one, two, three story buildings with uh, no overhangs. And in the California sun, that is difficult. Because the sun, the sun will eat those buildings up uh, unless they're stucco. So architects just need to think about the climate, just like we were taught in school, take the time to be thoughtful about this and maybe come up with a building design that comes from really listening to what your client says that they need. I want a place where the light that's coming into the classroom isn't east and west facing where the sun is just cooking everybody, but it's the north or the south where I can control the sun. How do I arrange my school to do that? I have to think about those things if I want to really do thoughtful design, not just design that's uh, kind of superficial. And I think too many architects have, have gotten lulled into doing superficial things with maybe little visual tricks to kind of spice it up instead of thoughtful 
uh, design that really, really works to solve clients' needs. If you surprise and delight your client with your design work, you're doing a good job. But if, you're, if your designs all tend to look alike, then maybe you're not working hard enough at the design part. So you can be your own judge. But what I see out there is too many architects have tended to be superficial instead of really deep thinking about their design work. You know, we're not going to take our place in society if we're, unless, we, unless we earn it. Yeah. I think some of that comes from the liability right? That repetition, yes. I know this one works, I know this one's safe, I'm going to do it again. Yes. And the demand for low cost design, right? So you don't have the time, which is exactly what you're talking about in the future. When all of this technology helps us do that, we do have more time, we do have more money. Yes. We can be more thoughtful in our design. Well, and if you, if you had the, the contractor as a collaborator, if your local school district said, you know what, we're not going to do design bid build anymore because it doesn't work, we're going to take design and build proposals. So you're all of a sudden now you can partner up with your favorite contractor. And I'm sure, I hope every architect out there has a favorite contractor that they work well with. I hope. Well, then you can innovate together and figure out the things that actually, that were a problem that, well, this one tends to make it leak. And this is so work with your contractor who knows how to do things and figure out designs that don't leak, that don't add to your liability, in fact, that reduce liability, and that allows you to innovate in thoughtful ways and still hold your cost down. Of course, owners are interested in cost. We don't have fabulously wealthy owners out there for the dream project of the sky's the limit, uh, whatever you wanna do is okay. That only happens in, I think, in books. So. You have to have discipline. Architecture is a discipline, and it takes discipline to be a great designer, and it takes thoughtfulness. Give yourself the time. Work with a contractor. Collaborate. Reduce your risk and come up with, with design that surprises and delights your client. You'll do fine. If you think back to starting Building Smart, and you're, you're at the point where you're bringing in Richard Petrie, because you know that it needs to be more formal, right? You had that, that, that meeting with, in the UK. The UK basically said, you have to grow up <laughs> and, and build a real organization. You, you went out and you found Richard Petrie and, you, and Richard established this, the structure on what, what Building Smart is built on, upon today. Put yourself back at that moment and none of that did happen, right? The Building Smart wasn't an idea. And you didn't start to uh, have that meetings, those meetings with Autodesk and all of those things happen, right? And, and Richard Petrie wasn't part of this, this, uh, this organization. And the organization didn't design the standards that are allowing us today, right? All of that work started years ago. So today we are where we are, which is allowing us to go where we want to go. Imagine if that didn't happen. What does today in the future look like? Does somebody else step in and do that? Or is there some other alternative scenario that would have or could have happened? That is a great question, Mark. First of all, I'm very grateful that it did happen, but let's say it didn't. And I think we're still on the, on the precipice here as a profession, designing and building things. There are all kinds of companies out there that are well capitalized that know how to design and build. Boeing. What if Boeing decided to start making buildings? You know, they got great big factories with big broad floors. They could, they could pre-assemble buildings, make them to, you know, aircraft's quality tolerances and turn them out like hotcakes, I think. Uh, or what if uh, Toyota decided to start making buildings? Uh, there's also the, the thrust from people that are well-financed, but not necessarily understanding the building arts. Google has a, a skunk works group called Google X and Google X actually uh, invested some time and money eight, 10 years ago now uh, in developing what they called an automated design. Uh, I guess it was a computer algorithm where they would actually map a city and, and take the existing city planning uh, setbacks and height limits and so on. And in two seconds, you could crunch out a, three different designs for a building on a, on a, in a certain spot that was a hotel, an office building, or a 
retail shop or something. And so it was kind of a pre-designed service by the computer. It could conceivably take away that thoughtful architect design phase. So the developer could say, okay, I like, I like the hotel option on this site. I'm going to hire an architect just to finish it up. That did not come to pass. Google didn't put that out. But those things are all around us. I just interviewed as part of this podcast series, uh, a company that basically with some algorithms shows developers what can happen in, on property to give a first glimpse of how you can do uh, different types of housing with all the parking and so on. And you plug in the numbers and boop, it gives you two or three options. Well, I think of that as a sharp pencil. That's maybe the beginnings of design. Mark, nothing can take the place of the human brain and the ingenuity that comes from the, how those synapses are working in your head of connecting information in different rich ways and allowing you to come up with innovative design. And nothing can take the place of sitting and listening to what your owner, your client really wants. You're going to get clues there that no algorithm can possibly match. But it's, it's this new world we're in where if we don't do this, if we don't take, seize this, we're going to have more and more of our future being determined maybe not by the, not by the civil engineers that I, I railed against, but by computer programming uh, or by big companies that can finance all of this expansion into the building arts space because we're so inefficient. So it's either, I think it's either we rejuvenate our industry ourselves we remake ourselves or somebody will do it for us. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. Yeah. Leah, Leah Iacocca. And I think uh, that has prompted me. I feel like I've had uh, some pretty good push on this just from seeing what other people outside of our industry think about us. They view us as ripe for the picking because we're so inefficient. Uh, the fact is, they also learn as they get into it, buildings are devilishly complicated things. Large buildings can contain literally millions of pieces. And even with the computer, it gets to be a little bit complicated and daunting to just have it all done by a computer. But people are working on it, Mark. So we need to work on it. We need to reform ourselves and get better at what we do, grow up into this modern world that we're in, show what we can do and get better so that we keep something that I think the world needs, which is design being at the center of making human existence, a noble thing. And uh, that's what we need to do. That's the great challenge. Thank you for joining us for this season of Build Smart. While this part of the story has come to an end, I encourage you to re-listen to previous episodes, all the previous episodes, to catch lessons that you may have missed the first time around. And make sure you stay subscribed to be the first to hear about season three of Build Smart. Season two of Build Smart podcast has been made possible in part by Building Smart International, the worldwide industry body driving the digital transformation of the world's built assets. Learn how Building Smart International is impacting our world and how you might get involved at buildingsmart.org. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging. 
the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.